Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shabbat Shalom. There's been a lot going on in the last week or so, to be sure, and much of it was expected. We knew Rosh Hashanah was coming. We knew what's going on in the world, and some has been unexpected. And I will not soon forget on Erev Rosh Hashanah when uh, my wife and I were sitting out uh, outside, and, and all of a sudden Cantor Brook comes running up to us to tell us the news of the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And sitting there, there were a lot of emotions flying around us as we heard the news of Justice Ginsburg's passing. There was sorrow, there was fear, anger that my first thought was about the ramifications of her death and not the incredible life that she lived. Because Justice Ginsburg lived a life that was incredible, a life of hard work and achievement that as Chief Justice Roberts put it, was one of the many versions of the American dream. Her mother was a bookkeeper in the garment industry in Brooklyn, and to quote Justice Ginsburg, what's the difference between a bookkeeper and a Supreme Court justice in America? One generation. She was keenly aware of her own story and the potential of our legal system to benefit its citizens, and she spent a lifetime trying to ensure that everyone was included under the protection of the law. But in all the coverage of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life, I am struck by her perseverance, her brilliance, her humor, and her diligence. But one thought stands out the most. I am not sure if there is anyone in this country for the past few years who was more constantly aware of the repercussions of their own death than Justice Ginsburg. Her dying was the subject of op-eds. It was commonly spoken about in political discourse. It was joked about on talk shows and skits on Saturday Night Live. Justice Ginsburg was asked about it in almost every interview, sometimes coyly and other times bluntly, but basically, she always got some sort of question like, what happens when you die? And have you thought about that? She was remarkably composed for such a grave topic. Sometimes she would laugh it off. She told the story of a senator who was gleeful at a bad prognosis she got a few years ago, and then recounted in her quiet and polite manner that that senator has since passed on while she was very much alive. Other times, she waxed beautifully poetic on the topic. Now, by most accounts, Justice Ginsburg was a kind, caring person. She was friends with those with even whom she disagreed before her tenure on the court. But I can't help but wonder if some of her grace and poise had to do with the fact that she was constantly reminded of the importance of her death. What must it have been like for her to spend each day thinking about the repercussions of if it were her last? 
How did that change the way that she comported herself professionally and even personally? If she did, in fact, contemplate this aspect of her life and death, then it is another one of the many, many ways that Justice Ginsburg embodied Jewish ideals. Rabbi Eliezer, in the Talmud, tells his students that they should repent one day before their death. But Rabbi, his students ask, how can anyone know exactly when the day of death will arrive? Naha says Rabbi Eliezer, all the more so. Repent today, for you may die tomorrow. This way a person lives their entire life in a state of tshuva, of repentance. Then Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai chimes in and says, this is comparable to a king who invites a number of guests to a feast, but doesn't put a time on the invitation. The wise among them, he says, get all dressed up for the party and they wait outside the palace. The foolish go back to work and wait there. When the king suddenly calls for the doors to be open and the feast to begin, the wise enter immediately, their party ready, and they are greeted with joy. The foolish show up to the party with dirty work-stained clothing and are forced to stand in the back of the feast. Rabbi Yochanan's point is clear. He reminds us that we're all going to be called into that king's feast someday, and we don't know when. The question is how do we want to look when we go? We should be like the wise ones who are always ready, who make sure our spiritual appearance will be welcomed when the time comes. In this way, the rabbis of the Talmud are essentially just doing what they always do. They're reminding us to be better people but they're couching that warning in the most dire or most final metaphor possible. What is it about the contemplation of death that might make us want to repent and be better people? Surely there are other methods of getting someone to change their ways for the better. So what is it about the, con the potential completion of our earthly journey that the rabbis are so sure will make us take the path of the righteous? For Rabbi Eliezer, it's about meeting the king, what God will say, how God will judge us when we have our exit interview from this life. This can, of course, be an effective inspiration for tshuva if you were about to meet someone who knew absolutely everything about you, knew everything you had done, and perhaps more importantly, knew everything you thought while doing it, how would you feel? I imagine you might try to change some things real quick before going into that meeting. I know I would. But even without the divine Damoclean sword hanging over us, without the fear of heavenly judgment, confrontation with mortality can inspire tshuva as we think about legacy. Being faced with one's death calls us to consider what we would be leaving behind. What morals and lessons have we imparted on those whom we've known? Are there relationships we leave broken that have yet to be repaired? What words have we left unsaid that need to be spoken? Like the dinner guests in Rabbi Yochanan's fable, when we think we have all the time in the world, we're more likely to put off what's important. If we think that all of this could be over tomorrow, that might change how we spend today. 
Suddenly, the immediate but immaterial seems less important than the long term that we've been putting off. If we knew it were our last, wouldn't we spend the day with the people we love telling them that we love them? Or fixing relationships and trying to correct our mistakes as best we can? Our money, no longer of use to us, would be spent setting up the next generation, helping those in need, and ensuring that our values live beyond us. In short, we would spend the day doing the work required to ensure that we leave this world looking as best we can. Perhaps, perhaps trying to get us to live this way is the impetus for the rabbis asking us to believe that death could be imminent this year, of all years. I don't think we need a reminder of the precariousness of life. But our people do have a built-in reminder of life's fragility. We have a day when we are all meant to anticipate the end of our lives and use whatever emotions come to spur us on to right action. That day, friends, begins tomorrow. It's Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur forces this realization on all of us. On Yom Kippur, we are asked to behave as if we were already dead. We don't eat. We don't bathe. We don't have intimate relations. Traditionally, we're asked to wear a kittel, the garment that Jews are married in, wear every year on Yom Kippur, and then are buried in. The machsor is full of allusions to who will live and who will die, standing before the Lord on Yom Kippur with no physical needs and literally wearing the clothing one will be buried in. It is a dress rehearsal for our deaths. The rituals and the liturgy of Yom Kippur force us to consider the end of our lives. And perhaps in that mindset, we're forced to do tshuva, to become better people. I ask you, where do you think you'll stand on Sunday night? When you're called into your one-on-one -on -one with our Creator, will you be one of the wise guests ready to attend the feast, or is there still work for you to do? Our job, not just over the next 48 hours, but every day of our lives, is to make sure that if, God forbid, any of us were called to enter that divine feast, we'd be ready. We need to ask for forgiveness and make amends. Sometimes, just as important as asking, we need to give forgiveness as well. Make sure that the people we love know it. Make sure the people we appreciate in this world know that too. If there is a cause, an idea that you have for something great, don't put that off. Start it right now. Do whatever you need to do to, in the words of my grandfather, who is joining us, I am sure. Shabbat shalom, Grandpa. Always leave your campsite better than when you found it. Now, we don't all meet this moment with the same elegance that Justice Ginsburg did. We read in this morning's Torah portion about Moses coming to the end of his life. Knowing that he cannot enter the promised land as the people approach the border, he can literally see his death on the horizon. Moses complains. He complains of God's unfairness. He complains of the Israelites. He asks God to change his fate. And only then does he acquiesce and speak his final words to the people. And they're words of wisdom, they're words of warning, they're words of blessing. Moshe ends his speech by saying, this is no empty thing. Ki lo reku, ki It is your very life. The commentaries can't decide what most, this, what isn't empty. What is it that the Torah says is not an empty thing? 
Some commentaries say that it means the Torah, the entire project is worthwhile, it is full. It might mean that it's the warning that Moses gives is no empty threat and that God will really hold us all accountable. Or perhaps, as Rabbeinu Bachia posits, the whole phrase needs to be read together. This is no empty thing, your life. Your life is not empty. Moses is seeing the end of his days, and he wants the people he leaves behind to know that life is not empty but full. As he looks back on his life and calls his people to think of their future, he's calling us not to treat our lives with emptiness, but focus on that which matters. On Yom Kippur, we're meant to contemplate what our lives look like. How would we feel if this was it, God forbid? What would we do if we could have more time because this isn't it? Please God, through God's patience, we will get another year and a chance to say what we would say, teach what we would teach, and ensure that we leave the legacy that we want to leave. This life is not empty, says Moshe, or to put it in the words of Justice Ginsburg, may her memory be for a blessing. When she was asked by a high school student if she had any advice for young people, she responded, whatever you choose to do, leave tracks. And that means don't do just for yourself because in the end it's not going to be fully satisfying. I think you will want to leave the world a little better for your having lived. And there's no satisfaction that a person can gain from just what people call turning over a buck. That's equal to the satisfaction that you get from knowing that you have made another's life, your community, a little better for your effort. As we go into Yom Kippur, may we live up to the life and legacy of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. May we heed the warnings of the rabbis and repent as if each day were our last. And may we keep the words of Moshe close to our hearts. This life is not empty, but it is also not permanent. May we do everything in our power to leave the world a little better for our having lived. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah.